Well, today we're going to be continuing this series that we've been in on the marks of a disciple. And today we're going to be talking about knees for prayer. As we begin that, I want to start with a story that I read this week from Ronnie Floyd's book, Our Last Great Hope. Here's what he says. There was a man named Jeremiah Lamphere who lived in New York City during the 1850s. Those were years of tension when the shadow of war loomed over America. There were strikes, depressions, failing banks, long job lines, and an air of simmering violence. In this setting, Lamphere accepted a call to become a full-time evangelist there in the city. He walked the streets, he knocked on doors, he put up posters, and he prayed constantly, but it seemed like there was no visible result. As his discouragement increased, Lamphere looked for some kind of a new idea, some possibility for a breakthrough. New York was a business town. Maybe men would come to a luncheon, he thought. So he nailed up his signs, calling for a noon lunch in the old Dutch church on Fulton Street. When the hour came, he sat and waited until finally a single visitor came to the luncheon. And then after a while, a couple of other guys peeked through the door and they came in late. Only a few people, a nice meal. Lemphurst said, I'm going to give this idea one more week. Twenty men attended the next week. It was a good start. And then 40 came on the third week. And then men got to know each other by this time, and one of them suggested that, why don't we do this every day? Why don't we have meal together? And the focus of their time together was prayer. Lamphere thought that was a good sign, and he ramped up his efforts for a daily meal and prayer time. Before long, the building was overflowing. The luncheon had to be moved again and again, so high was the demand. The most intriguing element of what was called the Fulton Street Revival, as they called that phenomenon, was the ripple effect. Offices began closing for prayer at noon. Fulton Street was the talk of the town, with men telegraphing prayer news back and forth between New York City and other cities. Yes, other cities had started their own franchises, and other godly meetings were being launched in New York City. The center of the meeting was prayer, as I said, and it was okay to come late or leave early. People didn't care about that. Men stood and shared their testimonies. This was not a place for the well-known preachers of that day. It was the working class. It was the businessman who wanted to share the good things of God together. Some historians went on to go so far as to say that the Fulton Street Revival was the third great awakening because it lasted for two years daily, and it saw at least a million decisions for Jesus Christ. Given the influence of New York City, no one could estimate the national and international impact that spread from Jeremiah Lamphere's simple lunch breaks. Wow! What a story! It speaks to us loudly about this series, The Marks of a Disciple, as we consider uh, each, uh, as we consider today, needs of prayer. I mean, we've looked at uh, uh, a heart for Christ alone. We've looked at our, our minds transformed by the word. We looked at arms of love. Just as he was for his first disciples, 
We're going to ask Jesus today to be our teacher, to be our teacher as we look together at Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. As he was praying in a certain place, we're told this. We're told that one of his disciples said, hey, Lord, uh, I got a question. Could you teach us how to pray? Just like John's disciples taught, him how to, taught them how to pray. Now, it was the custom in those days for a rabbi or a teacher to put together a simple prayer that could be used at any time by those who were his followers. Apparently, John the Baptist had done that very thing. So, if you would, follow along with me as I read from Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, a familiar passage. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. Then he said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight and says, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend, Yet because of the man's boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, and him who knocks, the door will be opened. To him who knocks, the door will be opened. And then another story. Which of you fathers, if your son asks you for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. May God help us as we dig into this word to come alive to us, come alive in a way that uh, maybe we see new truths and come alive in a way that helps us to be better disciples even this next week. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. <laughs> when we think about this word that's come down to us through the centuries, and when we think about it, I mean, written more than 2,000 years, or about 2,000 years ago, and yet still speaks to us profoundly where we are today. And we believe the reason is that your spirit indwells us and makes that word come alive. So speak to us today, Lord. Speak to the people and the preacher alike. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen. When we look at verses uh, 2 through 4 of this particular passage, we first 
find that Jesus responds to his disciples' request by giving them a model prayer. He tells them what they should say. And then he goes on to share how this helpful example can be a prayer for them. This is a little bit shorter version than the prayer that we usually pray and the one that we had in the video just a few moments ago. And that one comes from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. It's probable that Jesus didn't mean for this prayer to be one that we would pray in mindless fashion in which we would say the words without really thinking about them, even though we might know them. Instead, he was probably trying to give them kind of an outline, kind of a a sample or a paradigm of what they should follow when they prayed. He was giving them uh, some important ingredients for them to consider as they prayed themselves. When we pray the Lord's Prayer together on a regular basis, we follow the example that's been set down for us by Uh, for centuries by all kinds of Christ followers through the years. But when we pray them, do you really think about the words? Are you really praying those words, or are we just saying something together? (laughs) I'll never forget, and I say this to my own uh, disgrace, uh, in the first church that I served, uh, it was probably the second or third service. I was leading in worship, and I remember I was thinking about, while I was leading in worship and leading that prayer, I was thinking about, will I make it in time for the one o'clock kickoff across the river uh, watching the football Cardinals? I I hope none of you have ever done anything like that. But I mean, uh, that's what we can do sometimes. We're kind of an automatic pilot when we pray a prayer like that. And I pray that it won't be true of us. Jesus' model prayer begins where all of our prayers should begin, with God. Calls God Father. Simply, Father. Did you think about the warm, familiar nature of that idea? When talking about Father, that's to be in the pattern for our prayer. Uh, The late Bruce Larson puts it this way. He says, we can call the creator of the universe Daddy. Do you ever think about that? When you come to God in prayer, it's like you can call the creator of the universe, the one who put it all together, Daddy. That kind of familial closeness, sensitivity. And Larson says, we can crawl up on his lap in good days and bad days and talk to him. Do you think of God as Father when you address him in prayer? He goes on to say, hallowed be thy name. I remember a confirmation class I had once. Uh, and uh, it was made up of eighth graders, and, and this was back in the time when the Dallas Cowboys were really good, and they had a, had a linebacker named Hollywood Henderson. I don't know if any of you remember him, and I kid you not, one of the guys, and I think he was serious. In fact, I think it was the other pastor's son, and uh, he put down, Hollywood be your name, and I thought, no, no, you got it wrong, but what does that mean, Hollywood be your name? I believe it's a descriptor telling us who God is, For the Hebrews, names were always important, giving the character of the person. Jesus is suggesting here that the one to whom we are addressing everything is above and beyond all others. He is the ultimate in holiness or otherness. And yet he gives us access to him. As the loving father, he gives us access as if we're his child. Regardless of politics, uh, this week I happened to watch the presidential inauguration. Uh, 
And I was moved by the way the president was there with his children, and I thought, here's maybe the most powerful person in the world, and yet they have access to him at any time because he's their father, the most powerful person in the world, and yet the God who created us, the one who was the hallowed one above and beyond all others, we have access continually to him. Your kingdom come. It ties in with the major theme of Jesus' whole ministry. He's ushering in the kingdom. He's heralding the kingdom. And what is the kingdom but a new rule by God? In the longer version in Matthew, it reads, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, we are passionately asking God to more and more rule over our lives and to rule over the lives of people in our world. We are saying our world desperately needs you, God. It needs you, and it needs to be like someday we will discover when we are with you and like your kingdom is now. It's only partial here, but it will be complete then. It's imperfect here, but it will be perfect when we are with you someday. We are saying that our world desperately needs God more than ever, just as each one of us needs God more than ever. It's not my brothers or my sisters, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer, the wonderful Negro spiritual, or standing in need of God's compassion, standing in need of, of God's passion in our lives. When we pray, your kingdom come, and if we really mean it, then we must be ready because God might use us to be those who help bring in that kingdom. I read this week about a story uh, that took place in an inter-varsity Christian fellowship meeting at Georgetown University. They had the regular meeting, and at the end of the meeting, there was prayer. And uh, someone said, are there requests? And this uh, young student said, <laughs> My, uh, my computer just crashed, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I desperately need the computer, and I don't have the money. And uh, so a woman said, I'll pray for that. And so when she started pray for it, praying for it, in the middle of her prayer, she stopped. And instead of doing anything, she just left. People were wondering, what's this all about? She comes back with a laptop, and she says, I realized that what God was doing was asking me to be an answer to the prayer that I was praying. Oh, my friends, might that not often be the case when we're asking God for something? Maybe he's asking you to be part of the answer. Next, Jesus calls them to pray for their present daily needs. He says, give us this day our daily bread. As a father, i got to tell you, almost stronger than any instinct that I have within me, I want to provide for my daughter and now for my granddaughter. I mean, it's one of those things I can't even quite put into words. That's so strong. Well, I want to tell you, our Heavenly Father wants to provide for us. In the Old Testament, it's called Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord provides. Really important truth that we find throughout Scripture. In God's economy of time, the day is the primary basic unit. In the wilderness... They had manna for how long? For one day at a time. If they tried to pile it up, it's spoiled. They had to count on God for one day at a time. I really believe it's crucial for us to take one day at a time. Certainly in psychology or in so many other areas of life, 
one day at a time is a mantra that's said often, and sometimes we have a hard time doing it. Maybe if we're in the midst of grief, we're going through a conflict of one kind or another in some relationship, or if we're in the midst of some kind of an addiction, one day at a time is crucial. If you're in sports, one day at a time is crucial. You get too far out in front, and that's when you fall. Or in education, one day at a time is so important. That one day builds a foundation for the next day, and then the next day, and the next day. Jesus, in Matthew 6, chapter, verses 33 and 34, says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. And then, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You might say, well, that's great rhetoric, and maybe it's rhetoric that we all resonate with, but are you able to trust God enough to take one day at a time? Next, Jesus says we should pray, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. Whenever we come into the presence of a holy God, if we really see God, our audience of one, on a daily basis, we realize how small, how puny, how undone, how unclean, how sinful we are. In the Bible, this happens time and time again. When people come in face-to-face with God, they realize who they are not, and they are undone, often fall before, their, fall before God on the ground, or sometimes in, in, in good biblical fashion, they tear their clothes and they throw ashes on their heads. They realize they need to repent. Romans 3.23 puts it pretty well. For all have sinned, and because of that, we fall short of the glory of God. Oh, dear friends, it's crucial for us if we are going to be disciples, to constantly be confessing our sins to the God who sent Jesus, who came to be the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Think about this. Just as we brush our teeth and take a shower, at least hopefully most of you do, um, as we do all of that, which is our physical hygiene, we must also be concerned about the hygiene of our souls, spiritual hygiene. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to wash us clean. God wants us to be cleansed and forgiven. Doesn't overlook our sins. He's a holy God, but he wants us to be cleansed and forgiven. What about you? And then the final ingredient in this pattern or paradigm for prayer has to do with deliverance from temptation, which comes even before we succumb to sin. Lead us not into temptation. And of course, Matthew goes a little bit further when he says, but instead deliver us from the evil one. It was the evil one who tempted Jesus. Also, William Barclay here, a British scholar, puts it this way. It includes far more than the seduction, when he's talking about temptation here, the seduction to sin. It covers every situation which is a challenge to and a test of a person's integrity, and fidelity. We cannot escape it, but we can meet it with God. Oh, dear friends, it isn't a sin to be tempted in one form or another, but it's what we do with sin, that, I mean, what we do with temptation that makes it a sin. In all of these moments, we need to be praying, God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Just quickly, when we go to the last verses, 5 through 13, 
we find two really helpful parables here that are kind of a window uh, to what prayer should be like. See what you think. If we're going to have knees for prayer, these parables are crucial. In the first story or parable, Jesus talks about a friend who goes to another friend. It's midnight, and this first friend has had someone drop in. These guys have been traveling. Now, in those days, many times they liked to travel at night because it was so hot in the daytime. And so they travel at night, but, I mean, if you come at night, usually made bread for one day at a time, and, and so you travel at night, and someone comes in and, and uh, says, uh, I'm here, can I stay with you? Well, sure. Uh, well, food, hospitality was crucial. And so the guy doesn't have any bread, so he goes over to his next-door neighbor, just like we might do if we're out of sugar or flour or something like that, and he knocks on the door. Well, you got to understand what homes were like in those days. There was one big room, and the bottom part would be animals. And the upper level, and it wasn't like a loft or anything, just a few steps up probably, the upper level was a charcoal stove, and then there would be mats on which each of the family members would be sleeping. Grandparents, you know, kids, everyone. And so this guy uh, hears the knocking of his friend, and he's thinking, oh, no, they're going to wake the kids, going to wake the animals. This is not going to be nice. We're never going to get them back to sleep again. So he just tries to put them off. And then finally, because of the man's persistence, he gets up, and he gives, gives him some of the bread that he has. Now, there are two applications, I believe, here. The first one is persistence. It's not because God not because we're trying to make God do something that he doesn't want to do. And it's not because God's sleeping. I believe persistence is is believing that God is an all-powerful God and that he wants to provide for us, and so we stay with it. Sometimes God doesn't answer and provide according to our wishes and our desires. That's for certain. But he answers, and even though we may not understand it on this side, He answers in a way that's best for us. I believe the second piece here is that we we should believe that if a friend would get up and meet our needs, how much more will God, our loving Father, care for our deepest needs? I love the story of Augustine, who lived in the 4th century B.C. And Augustine was one of the great theologians, but he had a wild teenage years. I mean, you guys wouldn't know what this was like, sure. But, I mean, he was really off the charts in in doing the things that made his mother just cringe and think, oh, no, is this guy ever going to make it to to be 20, you know, that kind of thing. And so what happens is she realizes that he leaves home, and she starts praying, don't let him sail away. If he sails across the sea, we'll never see him again. He's going to get in all kinds of trouble in some of those big cities, and it's just not a good thing. So she prays fervently. And he does all the things that she doesn't want him to do. But then he finally comes home. And here's what he writes. And, what, and his mother was named was Monica, a beautiful Christian woman. And what did she beg of you, my God, with all of those tears? This is Augustine writing now. If not, that you would prevent me from sailing. But you did not do as she asked. Instead, in the depth of your wisdom, you granted the wish that was actually closest to her heart. For she saw that you had granted her far more than you used, than she used to ask in her tearful prayers. You converted me to yourself. 
so that I no longer placed my hope in this world, but stood firmly upon the rule of faith. And you turned her sadness into rejoicing, into joy far fuller than her deepest wish, far sweeter and more chaste than any she had hoped to find. God wants to provide for us even above what we might dream. The second parable here quickly is that a father uh, has a son come to him, and he asks for, uh, first he asks for fish. <laughs> Will he give him a snake that's going to bite him? I'm ridiculous. Or a father come, or a son comes and asks a father for an egg. Will it give him a scorpion? And some scorpions almost look like eggs in those days. In both cases, God is not going to play evil games with his children. If earthly fathers, Jesus said, who are less than perfect, and all of us know that we may have earthly fathers who are less than perfect, but if they wouldn't play tricks with their children, certainly our heavenly father won't do such a thing. I don't know if you noticed, but then comes the zinger. God wants to give us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces fruit within us. Those aspirations, those qualities that we want more than anything else. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. All of those things. The indwelling presence of God living in us helps us to pray as we should. Asking for the right things with the right attitude. Oh, Paul captures this idea in Romans 8, 26 and 27 when he says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with the groans that words can't express. And he who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Praise God! He wants to help teach us to pray as we are filled by the Spirit, and he can help us beyond human words. The one who knows our very hearts and minds intercedes for us. If you and I are going to be followers of Jesus Christ, no question about it, we must have knees for prayer. No shortcuts, no substitutions. Prayer is not an elective in the Christian experience. It is at the very heart, the very core of who we are and will always be a catalyst for growth. If you would, take out your bulletins. Some of you are almost asleep now, so this will be good. Um, take out your bulletins, and in the middle of your bulletin is that handy-dandy uh, piece of paper that we've had each week that is an evaluation sheet. Kind of look at it. Look and see where you are. Try to put yourself in this column that says, uh, Knees for Prayer. Where do you find yourself? Maybe some of you, and this is exciting, are beginning to pray for the first time and you're a seeker and you're started. That's wonderful. Maybe some of you, if you go a little further, are a beginner. You've moved a little bit further and you can see what the parameters might be there. Maybe some of you have moved to the point of intermediate or some of you are even to the point of being mature. Make sure of this, like every mark, there's always room to grow and become more like Jesus who felt a continual need to be in communication with his father. Did you think about that? Jesus maybe spent as much as a third of his time in prayer. Who do we think we are if we think we can get through life without praying? If he needed it, so do we as his followers. Maybe some of you are saying that life is so busy and so hectic, you just don't have time to pray. 
Maybe sometime when life settles down a little bit, then you'll have more time to pray. Maybe that's our excuse as a church. All the stuff we've got going on, we just don't have time to pray. Listen to these words from yesteryear American evangelist R.A. Torrey. We are too busy to pray, oh, so we are too busy to have power. We have a great deal of anxiety, but we accomplish little. Many services, but few conversions. Much machinery, but few results. We make time to do what we consider to be most important. We want to grow in our relationship, our intimacy with the Master. We must communicate with Him, sharing our lives on a moment-by-moment basis. Like Jesus' disciples, some of you may say, I'm not sure how to pray. Lord, teach me how to pray. We've seen the pattern here. But you say, how do I get started? I love what Peter Kreft says in his book, Prayer for Beginners. Prayer is easier than you think. We want to think it is too hard or too high and holy for us because, he, because that gives us an excuse for not doing it. This is false humility. We can do it. Even the most sinful, shallow, silly, and stupid of us. Hope. You, can, you do not have to master some mystical method. You do not have to master a method at all. Can you talk to a friend? Then you can talk to God, for he is your friend. The single most important advice about prayer is one word. Begin. God makes it easy. Just do it. God also makes it easy to progress in prayer, for it gradually becomes more and more natural and delightful. For me, a prayer journal is a crucial thing. I'm a dreamer, and I find my mind wandering all over the place. I have a journal. I've got several of them that I've filled through the years. I never go back and look at them, but nonetheless, it's crucial. And I use some of the same ingredients here that that, that Jesus talks about. Adoration of God, confession of my sins, thanksgiving for all the things around, and then asking him for the things that 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 are important to me that I might need. Like every church, we have challenges that are before us. No question about that. Lots of challenges. It's crucial that we come to God in prayer. As we close today, I might mention that before the first service, there was a group of people, and it was much like Lamphere's group, just a a group that got together and started praying in the chapel before the first service and between services. And some of you might want to gather there after this service and just Pray together side by side with other believers. Some of you may have brought something today that you have that you would like to pray about, and we'll have someone over at the the cross over here who would consider it a privilege to pray with you as soon as we're finished. I believe, like Lamphere in that opening story that I told you, that God has great plans for this church, but it all begins with prayer. Let's pray. God, I thank you now for this time which we've spent together. Thank you for each person here. I pray that you would help us to have knees for prayer, that you would help us to realize there aren't shortcuts, that prayer is an elective. It's crucial to all that we do. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.